Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. What does a word like lockdown imply and feel like? How might we choose the words we use more carefully? And what words of the ancients can inspire us to live more wisely today? In this conversation with Maori psychologist, researcher, and thought leader, Dr. Hinemoa Elder, we explore these questions. And we reflect, too, on the very live trauma of living in a post-colonial society. So the trauma of colonisation affects everybody. It doesn't just affect Māori. It affects us in a way because we are the ones who are continuing to be colonised. But also the people who are in the colonising role are forced to continue in the colonising role. So I would like to see a community where we can have radical, honest conversations about this. Hi everyone, welcome to Wiser Conversations, together at home. My name is Derek Handley. I'm an entrepreneur, an investor, a teacher and a student. Each episode, I sit down live with an amazing thinker, an author, an artist, a religious or spiritual leader. We have a conversation to reflect on our lives and the world around us in these very surreal times. With all the uncertainty, there is no better moment than now to reflect on what matters to us and who we wish to become as we see out this pandemic. Welcome. Tēnā koutou katoa, ngā mihi, mō tō tautoko ki tēne hui hui nei, hene moa, tēnā koe, ngā mihi ki a koe. This is um, going to be a really interesting conversation. It's the first of the wiser conversations with a New Zealander. And thank you very much, Hanima, for agreeing to join us. Nā mihi nui ki a kote katoa. Nā hau e whā. Te waiti, te waita. Nā mihi nui ki a kote. E te rangatira, Derek. Nā mihi nui hoki ki a koe. Morena. Morena. So, we had a chat a little while ago, and one of the first things we talked about was language. I think that's a really great place to start. When I first framed these conversations, I, I said this is in response to the lockdown. And your response to that was language. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the word lockdown. Um, your shirt, your mm. jumper has native. You're the first New Zealander. So I'd written a post and said the first native New Zealander, like thinking like the trees behind me in Tuturangi, Auckland, which are native trees, like people from New Zealand. And you wrote back and said, oh, we've got to be careful about that word. And people on Facebook wrote back and said, hey, you can't use that word. Language, so important. Let's start there. Kaufai, kaufai. Oh, um, I just want to meet to um, all our First Nations people online, our, our um Tangata Māori online, uh, thank, you for, thank you for making the time. And for all, all other um, nations and ethnicities, 
um, who happen to have, have found themselves here today. So language is, uh, you know, many, many eloquent scholars um, have talked about the importance of language as the, the ground floor, if you like, the, the, the foundations on which our cultures um, stand. And I'm fascinated by language in so many spheres. I notice it, as, as I'm sure you all do too, in, in the different areas that you live and that you work in. So I'm very sensitive to certain words. I guess I'm very proud to wear this hoodie um, from my dear friend, uh, Shona Tafiao. And yes, she has, she has put the word native, couture, on a hoodie. So this is one of the things that uh, some provocative people do, artists, um, uh, and other people who, who like to disrupt things and make us think differently about certain words like couture, not necessarily a word that you would think of on a hoodie, or native couture as a couple of words that are, are seen together. The word lockdown has a, such a military resonance for me, and I know for a lot of us um, Indigenous people, it's, it's not a... It's not a pleasant word and uh, I didn't want my experience during that period to be defined in that way. Many of you will know that um, Te Reo scholars uh, discussed different kupu, different words that could be used to better describe from a Māori worldview um, what was happening, um, the elements where we, we had certain restrictions on our movements, on um, where we were allowed to go, who with proximity and, and connectivity um, was constrained in the normal sense or the usual senses of our daily lives. And, and that, um, yeah, that, that raised all sorts of, that touched all sorts of hot points, if you will, historically and, and um, just in, within whānau. So that's why I, um, yeah, that's why I responded to those words. And what do you think are better ways to frame it like, Obviously, we've used in New Zealand Rahui, which is also used for the forests around me in Waitakere. Um, and in the California, they've talked about shelter in place, which, you know, there's mm. different ways to, to view it. But uh, what do you think the, the Maori response kind of landed on and what does it mean and what does it express differently than, than the idea of locking down? Yeah, so I think in essence, what what you've described as as local responses, local solutions, is really positive. And so people have found their own language to um, define their own experience of of these different stages where we've been affected by this pandemic. So Rahui has been a has been a word that's been used, and and there's been, as you can imagine, a lot of debate and discussion about to what extent that is a word that um, can be used outside of a purely Māori context. So in times gone by, and indeed now, um, various tribal groups, hapu groups, uh, will put a rahui on a particular area. It might be to do with, um, for example, somebody passing away by drowning in the ocean, and then there is a rahui on collecting... Um, seafood from that area for a period of time both as respect and and you know i i often say look this is about ancestral health and safety you know concepts like tapu and noa and rahui have come about because our ancestors uh, needed to survive and so there needed to be some rules and regulations around where to go and when to go there for certain activities so rahui has been um one kupu um Another fakaro um, that I've really liked has been the um, the 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 ha that um, that Scotty Morrison talked about. So we couldn't do we couldn't do hongi, right? This was quite an extraordinary thing for us as a culture. This is so so normalised, and suddenly to have this um, ability withdrawn has been very difficult. So. Um, to ha mamao, mamao is a is a long distance. So um, our leaders within the Maori society have 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 stood up and let us know through various platforms um, that this is a this is a uh, an appropriate response for us. And then another another phrase you might have heard of uh, noho um, faka faka noho a faka 
So this is about sitting um, in, a, in a sort of a settled, restricted environment. Um, yeah. So, so very, various options uh, mm. have, been, have been offered by various different people. But I, I don't, um, it's not my sense that there's one solution right um and that that's i think that's a useful learning like the diversity within maoridom reflects the diversity in in all cultures and all in all spheres so eight different age groups people of different age groups have also come up with different their own particular language Mm. it's interesting that we went through that we went in that process and generally the general population maintained the word lockdown and maintained that as Mm. the way to describe it without pausing and reflecting on the implications and the ideas and what it makes people feel. Uh, And we are now moving again, uh, doing a similar thing with this next phase, which is kind of uh, stirring a whole lot of new emotions in the last week with the quarantine. So now people are in quarantine, which again is kind of a bizarre idea of putting humans into quarantine and en masse on the thousands and putting them into buses and, uh, it's interesting how we do just move through and um, just use the words and just start to deploy them and not think about maybe how they might be thought about differently. Yeah, so we're having this conversation on Friday with a Indian spiritual leader um, from in India and with a local Maori leader and talking about Indigenous. And the lady, Precious, was talking about Maori and the Indians leader's response was that's the same as prana in Indian thinking and spiritual thinking. But the word itself, I think the question I had when I left that conversation was we all are indigenous from somewhere. What, what does that mean? Or are we not like, what's the difference? Like in terms of how do you navigate that um, nuance? Yeah. So, so the convention is that no, we're not all indigenous from somewhere. The, The convention is that the word indigenous is, is used in a very specific sense. Um, so, and the UN Convention on the Rights of Indigenous People is the place to go to and have a look at that. Um, interestingly enough, when that was, um, for, that took more than 20 years to get that document um, ratified, um, I believe it was 2007, New Zealand, Aotearoa was in New Zealand and Australia did not sign it initially. So, so um, yeah, Indigenous um in, in the conventional sense of the word, is related to pe- First Nations people, people who have experienced colonisation, and also people who are not solely defined by colonisation, of certain uh, First Nations people's practices around passing on their traditions. Uh, it also speaks to the particular relationship between First Nations, Indigenous peoples, and the planet um, for us, Papatūnuku and Tangaroa, the ocean, or Hinemoana and Ranginui. So there are... So there's a very specific understanding of that word. That's right. And a lot of it has to do with the passing down, as you said. Yes, yes. Um, in a world where that's so important to Māori and other Indigenous people uh, and nations, how... You know, so let's think about me. I think, okay, that is a really amazing privilege to have that, in a sense, to be able to draw on those. Uh, I've seen interviews with you talking about how you draw on your ancestors. You draw, they almost like they're coming through you. Mm-hmm. And for someone like myself who has never really felt that or understood that, you know, I barely knew my uh, grandfathers. I don't really know anything about the people that came before them, it mm. almost doesn't get passed through. It's very opaque. Mm. It's very hard to know. Mm. And it was never really talked about even when I was young and I would try to talk to my grandmothers about, you know, who are all the other people and where are they all from and all that stuff. And, mm. you know, my, my father's line is from uh, Scotland and England. My, my mother's line is from Malaysia and India and China. But to me, past that level, it's a, it's a big blur. And how do you think, you know, what do you think people like me could do in this in these situations to try and figure out how how we can um tap into some of that same um you know flow sure so i think it's very interesting isn't it that um everyone all human beings uh, need a sense of identity 
and um, the the history of the um, oppression and colonization and um, all, all sorts of, of historical experiences of different peoples around the world have um, have impeded that in some ways, have also strengthened that in other ways. So um, I think it's fascinating that as Indigenous peoples, we are often asked uh, to take a leadership role here and to help people from other cultures, maybe particularly in New Zealand, to, to reclaim and redefine their own um, sense of whakapapa, their own sense of genealogy. So that, that in itself is, is a fascinating uh, question. And, and what I suggest is that um, there is a journey of discovery before all of us. Just because I'm Māori and I, I, I am privileged to, to be part of that lineage doesn't mean it's sort of um, somehow handed to me on a plate by any means. Um, it's actually, there are all sorts of challenges for, for us as Māori, uh, because also Māori, we're a very heterogeneous community, to, to uncover and to discover and to reconnect with, with, our, with our ancestors. So that being said, one of the tools that I would uh, I commend to all of you to have a go with is what we call pepeha, um, and this is the formal way that many of us use and that our ancestors used. Essentially, the purpose of it is to work out how we can be connected. So you will have heard um, people maybe on the marae on Māori television talking about, you know, ko, so for me, ko, uh, ko awapaka te awa, ko pōtahi te marae, uh, the name of my river, the name of my marae, the name of my iwi, uh, ko te Pauri, ko Ngāti Kuri, ko te Rarawa, ko Ngāpui Nui oku iwi. These sorts of things, the landmarks, the places and spaces and the histories embedded in those um, areas locate me in time and space. So my name comes at the end of that kind of introduction. And these pepeha are fluid. It's not one pepeha, you know, for your mm. whole life. We know that when our ancestors travelled around and they travelled extensively, that they would um, think carefully about the kinds of connections to emphasise, for example, when they were in the Waikato, when they were in the Hawke's Bay, because the purpose of that is to really join up with the other people who happen to be there. And that's what we're all, that's the purpose of our, one of the purposes of our identities as global citizens, that, surely. That's fascinating. I had no idea that you could, uh, I mean, it, I do it in my own personal non-Pepeha way, where the way you introduce yourself to someone differs depending on who they are and where you are. And I didn't realise that that's also, the fluidity mm. exists in Pepeha. And, yeah. Some um, of our ancestors even had slightly different names. So they would be known by different names in different parts of the country. Um, and, and we all do that, don't we? So we're known by certain nicknames when we're in different contexts with our whanau. Um, my father calls me Dids. He's always called me Dids. It's because I was a very little baby. And so Didums, right? So he, you know, I'm a, I'm a 50 plus year old woman and he will ring me up and say, hey, Dids, you know. <laughs> and, and people can relate, right? Because you will have, maybe you have a name at work. I get called doctor sometimes. Just to give some some contemporary examples. So I think, you know, all of these um, strands uh, can be drawn on by people of any culture. And it might be that, that the, the Māori technology of our ancestors is, is helpful to people living in Aotearoa. I get asked a lot um, by, by colleagues. I, had a, I have a little YouTube video that I made for Brain Research New Zealand. And so people sometimes come across that and they'll message me and say, Hey, I wanna I wanna create my own pepeha. How do you suggest I do that? So this is uh this is not just me saying this. This is this is happening in the wider mm. um, sphere of Aotearoa. Yeah, and I think we are at schools teaching or helping kids do that as well. I mean, I have a seven-year-old. You know, we moved back from New York to Tuturangi a year and a half ago, and part of his post last year was to create a pepeha and. For him, it's a little bit confusing because he feels like, well, I've lived in New York. I was born in America. Like, how do I tell the story? And I think that it's nice to know that it can be fluid and that he can uh, make it his own in a sense. Because, you know, the mountain that we pick, which we live on here, we've only just got to know it. It's not like it feels like it's where he's from. He's feeling that he's becoming from here. You know, it's not where he was 
grown, as he would say. And yeah. it's nice to think that there are different pieces that he can um, that he can pull into broaden and, and, and change that story. Anyway, I think what, what would be interesting at the moment to go to is the last couple of weeks or three weeks has been really uh, disrupt, angry, disruptive in the world around mm. um, the George Floyd uh, kind of the episode and then the series of episodes that are being piled on top of, of COVID in America and then sending kind of shockwaves around the world, whether it's Bristol to Hamilton to George Gray's statue, like there's something happening at the moment in the world where cracks that are always, or we're always there are starting to open up. Um, I, I wonder uh, if you could reflect on what you think about where we are at this moment and the local global interplay between New Zealand and, and this broader global conversation. Wow. Yeah, it's, um, look, I think we've been in this for a very long time. I mean, for, for, from an Indigenous perspective, from a Māori perspective, um, the, this is no surprise to me. The, this has been going on and on and on for, for, for hundreds of years um, in different parts of the world. And, and so now we have this concentrated um, experience of it where there, there's... there's so much uh, oppression and violence and discrimination and, and Frank, you know, murder by, by um, state employees, murder by police in the US, which has been going on for a Very long time. Long time. Um, maybe because of social media, maybe because of the, the COVID context, we are seeing more of that um, available to us and people are reacting more in a more focused manner perhaps because of this wider context of um, being restricted in our, in our ability to connect with each other physically. And, um, and also because uh, I, I hope people have actually had a guts fall about this now. I mean, where are we going to draw the line? I have to say, I don't, I don't necessarily feel all that optimistic that much is going to change. Um, sadly, I wish I did, but um, I think I'm a realist and uh, the structures that maintain these, these activities and uh, legitimise murder and legitimise racism uh, are, not, are not being dismantled. I think the, what I'm seeing is a similar sort of pandering that we've seen before, which is to try to shut the thing down. Um, are you saying locally or do you think internationally? I think internationally it's clearer, isn't it? I mean, there, there's very little, uh, I mean, people are saying, you know, defund the police and dismantle these things, but the reality is to what extent that can happen, I'm, I'm not so sure. I mean, I think locally we've, we've had a few examples that strike me as um, not only symbolic, but also... Um, evidence of uh, a default position which was the is the invisibility of particularly Māori in, in big decision making so for example during COVID um, while a lot of what happened with the organization of, of trying to minimize the um, transmission of the virus has been very effective we, we saw two Pākehā uh, on the podium every day so uh, we, we supposedly live in a country which is a treaty partnership, but we did not have visible Māori um, at that top level of decision-making every single day. That was a very powerful one o'clock daily mm. experience of Aotearoa politics, and uh, Māori were not there. That didn't happen by mistake. That happened because somebody decided not to have Māori visible on that stage. I think it was wrong. I think it could have been done much better, and I know that our Māori mm. community really suffered in different ways, and we, we took charge. I mean, we've, we've lived through the, the absolute horrors of epidemics and pandemics before, Spanish flu. You know, these, all these things where, where, where Māori were very much disproportionately affected are within living memory of our whānau. And so whānau got, got, got organised um, and 
as far as I'm aware, local police were, were very supportive of all of those initiatives. And our, and our, our old people, our co-master were, um, were protected in that way. So uh, uh, the, the other example, to be honest, is our Prime Minister has not visited Ihumatau. And uh, that also, I think, speaks volumes about this whole issue that we're talking about, which is mm. uh, about racism, uh, structures that maintain racism in all parts of the world. Fascinating stuff. I, you don't, you know, when you observe and then reflect back on something as simple as what you said about the 1pm, you know, the most powerful repeated use of media, I mean, probably in the history of New Zealand, right? The 1pm, it became the new moment for the country for about, I don't know how many days, but it was almost 60 days more. And to have not reflected on different ways in which that could have been approached is really something powerful to think about. Yeah. Thank you um, for sharing it. And before we kind of go in a maybe different direction, you know, something I struggle with and, when you struggle sometimes you don't want to say anything you don't really know what to say i find difficult at the moment is right now there's a, a, a something happening where people are looking back on people of history and judging them mm. by the present and part of me thinks if you look far enough back anyone that's celebrated at some point in time can be judged negatively today. Like if you look three, four, 500 years, almost everyone's done something that doesn't make sense today. Mm. And then there's a spectrum of people that really shouldn't be celebrated. But I, I wonder how, how you think about that before we just pull down everybody. Um, is there a way that you keep people that have done bad things as we judge them today, but you keep them in a different context and you explain it or you kind of... Um, use it to educate or is it like no these people must come down they mustn't be statues or plaques or i mean because it can go it could go forever cities universities schools names of towns roads mm. all those things that if you really went down to each one of them you could really go be, go on for a long time on this to pull down um and rebuild and maybe that is the right thing but um, i'll be interested in what you think mm. Yes, it's a, it's a very, it's, I think it's a very important discussion and I don't think there's necessarily one simple answer. I, I think there is, there is clearly, there are a group of monuments that are absolutely abhorrent and um, I suppose the question in my mind is how do we, how do we remember the abhorrence? Because we can look at other places around the world where, um, you know, symbols of oppression and um and 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 totalitarian um pol political systems which have been designed to uh for example cleanse ethnically cleanse certain groups from that community those the the monuments have been built and then they've been removed and there's been the sense of but how do we how do we remember this cruelty? How do we remember this oppression to try to make sure it doesn't happen again? And I suppose, you know, Germany is a, is a country where they've really grappled with this. Um, and so they've taken their own approach. And so you can go and visit, you know, mm -hmm. some of these, these absolutely horrifying places where, where Jewish people were, were, were slaughtered in, in massive numbers. And so I think we, we can learn from... The, finding our own local solution to balance. And, and also I think, you know, the destruction of some of these um, hideous objects um, serves an important purpose. You know, people have a lot of emotion. And as a psychiatrist, I, this is what I honour every day is the pain and suffering and the trauma that people are still living with because of, uh, frankly, people like Captain Cook. And, and so... People need a way to ventilate that emotion. And if, and if destroying a monument or putting a little shed over it, which I thought was a pretty ingenious um, solution, it, it helps people to feel better. I think there's a role for that. Mm. So, and then, of course, people would say, well, how do we make sure that that kind of 
outpouring of emotion doesn't get out of control. Well, that's another conversation that we can have. But I think let's let's think about the functionality of um, what people need from that process of removing removing those um, objects and how that removal is done, and then how we might need to collect some of those things in in ways. And we've got you know we've got the internet. We can we can curate. Um, places, whether they're virtual or real places, for people to go and learn about and for children, for us to pass on, we were talking about passing on knowledge, for us to pass on knowledge as communities about human suffering and uh, cruelty and discrimination and how we, on the other hand, also pass on, well, how do we guard against that? Right. So that, that's where I'm sitting with, with those things. Yeah. Um, and I, I understand that many people feel the need to, to destroy those objects. And um, I don't have a problem with it. I don't think that there's a, there's a problem with going back and we would have to destroy, um, many, you know, many, many things. <laughs> I, I don't see it in, that, in the way that you've described. Yeah, I'm not saying it's a problem. I'm saying the problem is grappling with what the well, how to approach it. I'm not saying the problem is destroying them. That may be the approach. Yeah. The thing that I find is difficult is how do you go about weighing them? Like it's a, it's really like you're weighing uh, the scales in history and needing to make a decision. All the decision gets made for you. People go and do it. I mean, my way of thinking is I'm not a historian. But I, if, we were to, if we were to go through as a collective here, if we had a whole day to Wananga, let's look at the top 10 um, uh, objects that are up for discussion. I think you'd find that nine of the 10, the people at the time, the many people at the time objected to that. Right. And tried to, and tried to stop it from happening. But the dominant culture... Trumped through. all of that yeah. and and put that object in place. So I actually think even I don't even think today. it's an issue of modern thinking versus thinking from five hundred years ago, for example. Yeah, I don't think that's the challenge. You have a, a book coming out. It's about Maori wisdom. This session was uh, mm. Maori wisdom, modern world, uh, and uh, I think that's really a nice place to to go now. And someone. I mean, you can talk about the book, but also uh, there's a nice question here, which I think is really um, interesting. Mm. And the question is really, I'm interested in, in Homo's view of incorporating Maori, Maori healing practices mm. into the health system yeah. uh, in New Zealand. And that, that there's a belief that we could learn so much from it. And I've seen you speak about this before and how it's so... Um, uh, how the, the Western system has, what's the word when you kind of just don't look at the whole and you look at the part and you go right into the part, whether it's a one human and you take that one human and you disassociate them from the surrounding, their family, their, and we see this in addiction, we see in all sorts of things. You think you take the person out and you try to fix them in their own and then put them back into society and they'll be fine. And it's really like, it's in a whole organism. Yeah, so so really re fascinating. What a, you, a reductionist what approach, I think, is what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So, so look, um, we're we're already using Maori approaches within many aspects of of um, vote health. One of the kickers is that um, it's it's often a struggle. It, it's it's a big struggle to really embody and roll out and maintain cultural authenticity of these models, of these practices as Māori within DHB structures. And I can hand on heart speak to that. I was part of a team that set up a kaupapa Māori, Māori, by Māori for Māori service in child and adolescent mental health in South Auckland in 2007. And you know what it felt like to me was every night I went home and it was like the DHB dismantled everything that we did and every morning we had to go in and rebuild the whole thing all over again and it it nearly broke my heart it made me ill it made me angry and the need was massive the need still is massive and any of you who live in South Auckland may know the DHB has now got rid of that service so the vagaries of DHBs mean that 
you know, all sorts of good people, not only Māori, Māori and our non-Māori colleagues, we are trying our best to set up and maintain uh, the delivery of culturally appropriate services to our own people, and it's, it's really tough. Um, I'm working in some clinics on the North Shore of Auckland at the moment. I'm working with lovely people who are very caring. One other Māori... And, and believe me, you might think, oh, North Shore of Auckland, there won't be many Māori there. Well, you're wrong. There's actually a lot of Māori who live there, and it's not an easy place for Māori to live. Hence, there are some mental health issues. And on the Kaipara, there's a whole history of stuff that's gone on there that some of you will know about that mean that, you know, those people are impacted by historical issues. So I just give you those tiny examples to illustrate it's a, it's a complex problem Lots, and there'll be, people, there'll be people on this call who know what I'm talking about, who are probably doing this, Mahi, who are battling the, you know, fighting the good fight. And thank you. Namahi nui ki a koutou, ki a tātou. And we're going to keep doing it. We, yes, the DHBs can keep doing what they do. We'll keep doing what we do. But you know what I want to happen? I want us to finally get the funding so we can deliver our stuff to our own people. Our tenoranga tiratanga. All of this other stuff is okay, but it's never going to really solve the issues. That's my little rant, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so that that's, sounds like back to something you mentioned earlier, a structural, systemic thing that needs recreation for um, that community you were, you're talking about. I think the question can be expanded to think about, well, what about the philosophies and ways of thinking about health that would be beneficial for everybody? How yeah. could that, um, how could we talk about that? Well, I think there's a few ways that I talk about it and, and some of you will be well aware of this. Um, I think we need to really focus on prevention first and foremost, because we are very heavily investing in, you know, what's already gone over the edge of the cliff. We all know this. And there's a lot of talk. The whole time I've been in medicine, in 20 years, people have been talking about this. People have been talking about silos, um, ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, and we still do it. We have not learned. We do not employ our own evidence. The Parkia structures do not employ their own evidence that this is not working. Let's do something different. Um, so... Yeah, the, the, the philosophies in terms of prevention, I think um, we need to see potentially things like um, kapahaka, um, um, wakaama, maurako, um, uh, te reo Māori. All of these things are health issues. You know, actually, if we had a bilingual country and everyone spoke te reo Māori, te reo Māori our, our health um, profile would be very different. So the, the, the trauma of colonisation affects everybody. It doesn't just affect Māori. It affects us in a way because we are the ones who are continuing to be colonised. But also the people who are in the colonising role are forced to continue in the colonising role. So I would like to see a community where we can have radical, honest conversations about this. And it's, this is not just me saying this, as I'm sure most of you know. There are, there are Māori scholars, there are um, eloquent, um, dedicated people who've gone before me, who've already, you know, I'm just, I'm just um, part of that line. I'm one of the conduits carrying on the conversation which has been handed on to me in which I, I investigate my, my contemporary time. I've done research, I've done my PhD, I've done all the, all the parkia things, you know, to try to present evidence-based stuff. And you know what? They still don't listen to you. So we have major challenges out there, don't we, Farno? Yes, we do. Sounds a little bit depressing. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, it is depressing. I mean, you've it done all depressing. the work. You've done all the paths. You've done the things. And you're still, I mean, it, it, it's literally like headbanging. It is. And I wouldn't mind betting there's a whole lot of people watching this and, and listening to this who are feeling exactly the same way. because. Um, we, you know, we are banging in our heads against the wall. You, you, you develop research. You have practice-based evidence, whether you're in business, whether you work for iwi, whether you're in the community, whether you're in health, whether you're in education, whether you're in justice. 
all the all the information points in the same direction you know the waitangi tribunal wrote an elegant report last year about holder it's the first one of two sections about primary health in new zealand and they say categorically the government has absolutely neglected maori health it's a it's a you know it's a crime it's a crime against the people how do we all um stop it from continuing i don't have i don't have a magic answer to that well i'm sure the collective although as you said the hundreds of people on the call have a lot of different ways in which they are trying and That's continuing right. to do so um, and, and can i just say on that you know like we have to look after ourselves we have to look after ourselves for no um maori mai pakia mai because we are all you know well meaning people trying our best and it's really tough and the big worry i have at the moment actually is the health workforce in this next era of covid because i think i've seen people really and i know myself sucking up lots of stress just mm. getting on with it and what we're seeing now is the next wave which is a lot of anxiety baseline levels of anxiety in the community are much much higher kids are really struggling and fun of really struggling with all the the moving parts of the new era getting back to school feels weird people have lost their jobs financial security is out the window and so the the mental health workforce in particular are facing this tsunami it's it's very difficult times right now and i i can looking at the faces of the people i can see i I can see that people kind of are maybe resonating with what I'm saying. It's it's bloody hard out there, isn't it, Fano? <laughs> yeah, I think it's getting harder too. So, let's go to something which I hope is going to be a bright I'm 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 sure it is going to be when it comes out your your book and your fakatoki and the, oh, yes. the wisdom that you have collected into 52 um 52 I think, right? One a week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you might recall I I wrote a article a week for the for the Sunday paper for a while and when when they were when we were discussing it and they asked me to do that I said okay I'll do it but I really want to have a fakatoki that I will include every week and you have to publish that. And that was my way of having that that sort of cultural line in the sand and to ground me, to ground my quarter or my thinking. And I I found it very powerful. And so then uh people from Penguin Random House UK got hold of me. Actually got hold of me through the 100 Maori leaders that Tero Matatini Tero Ora put together. So that was amazing, deeply humbling that you know these Maori activities that we do are seen globally. And um so I they said would you write a book and I said well okay I'll write a book and um it's been a it's been an amazing journey so yes that book is coming out at the beginning of october um ebury press which is a a group of a subsidiary of penguin random house uk um and it's been it's been a joy and it's also been you know um i've had to really uh, get a bit vulnerable <laughs> um around what's what really goes on and you're like many people I'm brilliant at you know put on a brave face go yes I'm fine let's crack on let's get the job done but actually of course you know behind all that I go through the same anxiety and worry and heartache about various things that everyone goes through and and so I I thought it's important for me to be real about these things in this book and the fakatoki helped me with that Would you like to share one or two? I we have a question here about the future. How how do you think about the future? Are there ways that Maori people think about the future that um would be interesting or a new paradigm for us to think about? I mean you could okay. maybe if you have if I could talk to you about the future or sure, any, look, anyone. Like, I'm happy to try to weave those things together. Well, you know, <laughs> we we have a we have a funny way of thinking about the future in Tel Maori which is back to the future. We've all seen the Michael J Fox movie. and it's kind of a little bit like that so so we we move into the into the future but we face the past that's that's a, one of the ways that we talk about it and um so 
the way forward and for for uh, for my way of thinking and i think the following the navigational tools which is what these fokotoki are essentially they help us to navigate the complexities of our modern world and and i think the reason they're still relevant the reason we still use them is that they um they still hit home you know if they weren't that great if we were like oh no that doesn't mean anything to me well we wouldn't use them but the fact is we do use them so one of my favorite ones which um which i think is relevant here is uh, which means if you seek the treasures of the ocean you got to get wet so if we want to keep moving in a healthy fashion into the future and i'm and i'm signaling like that because that's where the future is for me right now because i'm looking at my past and i'm taking my past with me into my future stepping carefully right because i'm walking backwards um then you've got to get involved you can't just stand on the beach and go oh i'd like to investigate what's happening out there in the depths of the ocean but i don't want to get my feet in there well you're not going to get far we have to be brave we have to be bold we have to be ambitious uh, and we have to get in there and get get involved so um that is that is my mantra if you like um ideas are you know one thing but implementation is everything try things out if they don't work the way you thought you always learn something even if they do work the way you thought they were going to work there'll be some wrinkle in the story i mean i don't know about you fellas but nothing ever quite goes to plan in my life does it ever go to plan in your life <laughs> i don't think so right <laughs> and you know, we 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 structure our lives thinking oh yes it'll be a b c d e but it never is so let's not be afraid and and hold back even though this is a time of great fear, you know, we've got, we've got all sorts of fear and fear-mongering going on all around the world. And we're, afla- we're afraid about the future of our planet. Let's not forget about the climate injustice and climate justice and emergency, as well as all the other things we have to deal with. But we still have to keep turning up and getting our feet wet if we're gonna learn um, the things that are gonna help us for the future. Personally, I'm sharing the Māori wisdom that's been passed on to me that I've been lucky enough to um, be taught by esteemed, useful um, proponents of Whakatauki and Whakatauaki like Te Whare Huya Milroy, who is an inspiration for the book also. So like you said before, um, Derek, you know, sometimes it can be elusive and you say, oh, I tried to talk to my nannies about it, but they didn't know. But there are ways now you can do it. You can do a DNA test. You can, you can go back to the records in the church of that place and, well, at some point where we can travel, back to Scotland or England or Malaysia or India. There are records. So it just means you have to make a bit of an effort, guys. It's not going to be handed to you on a plate. And please don't get the impression from me that these things are handed to us as Māori on a plate. We have to work bloody hard to, to reconnect with our, with our tupuna and to stay connected. It's not an easy journey at all. So um, my thinking about the future is reclaim your past, reclaim your cultural identity, speak your own language, and um, yeah, have some pretty firm boundaries around that. You know, just because people can speak English doesn't mean we should speak English. I'll give you one other little story that I think might be salient here. Right. Um, I was I was privileged to go and study with some colleagues from around the world in Bilbao, which is in the Basque country of Spain, in 2013. And so they speak Basque, right, and Spanish. And my Basque friends were saying, you know, actually, we're pretty slack. If we, we might know that we speak Basque, but if the other person speaks Spanish, we might just speak Spanish to them. They were comparing themselves to people from, um, from Barcelona who speak Catalan. So people who speak Catalan just speak Catalan. 
even if they think you can't speak Catalan, they're not going to speak Spanish to you. They have a rule. They only speak Catalan. So I, I think this, is, this was certainly something I have I've thought about deeply all, all these years because I think as Māori, we can be, um, we're very about the monarchy, right? We're all about making sure our visitors are feeling supported and hosted and looked after. But sometimes maybe we take that monarchy too far and maybe we just need to speak our own language, coming back to language that we started with at the beginning. And as a way to encourage people and welcome people into our world through our language, uh, because we have different conversations in our language and we can share our wisdom differently in our language. We have, I have different conversations with my patients and their whanau as a psychiatrist in Te Reo Māori than the conversations that I have with them when we speak English. So these are, I think, that just because Māori can speak English doesn't mean that that is, um, that's the way that we actually prefer to communicate even the ones that, even the Māori that can only speak English. Actually, the English words don't always do it. Strange, huh? Not so strange. I think the language has its limitations and each language has their own unique, beautiful uh, abilities that no other language has. Oh, absolutely. So. I mean, it opens the door to the culture, doesn't it? Yeah. In, my, in my traumatic brain injury research, one of the things I found which really blew me away across urban, rural and rem remote marae was that everybody said, even if you can't speak te reo, it's important to use it because te reo is a healing. Te reo is a medicine. Even if you don't understand that language, it is healing for Māori who've mm. had brain injuries. So, you know, there, there are some fascinating findings and, and for those of you who work in health, yes, those findings are being used in, in health services right now. Thank you so much, Henema. Take care of yourselves. Be kind to yourselves. Thanks for joining us on Wiser Conversations, together at home. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review it today. And if you haven't already, go on and push subscribe. See you next time.